Welcome to the Critical Witness podcast, where we talk faith, apologetics, evangelism, and anything else we can think of. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, hello, welcome to Critical Witness. It's good to be here. I've done it again, Dan. I'm a little bit surprised as we start our stream. <laughs> I had another tab open. It was playing things back at me, so I'm trying to close it really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so once again, I'm surprised to see you all, despite me clicking go live. So uh, welcome. We've got uh, a great guest with us uh, this evening. Uh, we've got Dr. Joshua Swamidas, uh, who's written the genealogical Adam and Eve. Uh, he's a very clever man, has a fantastic book but also done uh, things with com- computational biology and genetics that um, are probably going to leave me scratching my head a little bit as we talk about them but hopefully we'll get into his book which has set a new paradigm with discussing Adam and Eve whether or not they are literal uh, people in recent history whether that can combine with evolution uh, how does that then interact with the debate between uh, young Earth, Old Earth, and everything in between those two uh, positions, three positions, four positions, however many positions there are for the origins. So we're going to get straight into it. We've probably got about an hour and a bit, um, and feel free to ask us questions as we talk. Um, welcome, Dr. Joshua. <laughs> are you happy with Joshua or Josh? Either way works. Great to meet you. Cool. Nice. Glad to have you on the show. And uh, Dan's obviously here as, as well. I, I don't need to really introduce him. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, it would be great just to hear a little bit about um, what led you to writing this book um, in a sort of short synopsis of, of your background, better than my introduction. Um, and then we can kind of engage with, with what your book actually, actually says. Well, in a lot of ways, it's an accident. I'm, I'm a, <laughs> I didn't really mean to write this book. It just happened. Um, I, um, I'm a practicing scientist, uh, and that's what I do for my living. I'm also a Christian, and so I've often wondered about questions of origins, and and that's really what drew me to really try and make sense of it and understand it for myself. Uh, but when I say I was kind of forced into it, uh, I was just uh, found myself in a situation where I realized that, wow, there's a lot of people who really are confused about what the science actually really says here. And that's creating a lot of confusion and conflict. There's just a lot more um, options available, a lot more space. And in fact, uh, there isn't nearly as much conflict as everyone has really assumed for a very long time. And I I just ended up in a situation where, uh, you know, it just was a pretty big shift in paradigm for a lot of people. And it really required a book to really explain the full extent of what I was saying. Nice. Yeah. It's... um... It's interesting. I like the way you say that that you you kind of wrote this because you wanted to try and understand things your 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 yourself with a bit more clarity. Because it is, I think there is a that even I'm confused. I'll be honest. Like I uh, I have a sort of healthcare background, but a sort of I guess a rudimentary sort of understanding of science and things as well. Um, and even I get confused. So I think all the science Christians um, 
you know, their part their, their, their scientific diet is always filtered through this sort of materialistic materialist lens. And mm-hmm. so, and then the only scientists I really, really I ever sort of hear about will be sort of, um, you know, young earth creationists who are scientists trying to tell us, uh, you know, present their position. Um, but, um, it's, it, but, but yeah, so there's, there's, there's often lack, a, a lack of sort of clarity about what Christians should actually believe or what we can believe about. Because uh, often I think we read a lot of books and sometimes the science is quite outdated, uh, but it seems that you're you're presenting things right at the, the sort of, um, you know. Yeah, and, even, and even what it is that actually evolution really entails, right? Uh, if it's true, like, I mean, look, I get, I get it. A lot of people in the church, uh, a lot of brothers and sisters in the church, are just not convinced by evolution and they're skeptical of it. Okay, fine. I'm not trying to convince you to change your mind on that. But if you read Proverbs, if you look at what wisdom is, there's still value in understanding things, even if you disagree with them. And mm. um, and so that's really the invitation of this book is like, okay, even if you disagree with evolution, or even if you disagree with uh, you know a literal Adam and Eve, fine. I mean, I'm not trying to convince you that either of those things are real. That, that's kind of a different conversation. Let's, let's just actually look and see what those things really mean and what they entail and if they really are in conflict. And, and I think that's actually where um, my book, uh, my book's point isn't about arguing for a literal Adam and Eve or arguing for or against evolution. It's really, um, I think, a convincing case that those two things, even if you take Adam and Eve very literally, are not actually in conflict. And the reason why we thought they were in conflict was uh we just didn't understand the science and maybe we forgot the genesis tradition as well Hmm. i I found it helpful in many ways because it sort of broaches what is often just uh, us versus them type dynamic in these conversations i'll compare it to my reading of um uh john watson's uh the john walton lost world walton walton not watson watson that's uh sherlock isn't it um (laughs) john walton's lost lost world uh of genesis one i found that just took the sting out of the debate quite significantly by just saying look let's let's figure out what the author intended uh, and there's there's people who disagree with walton on things but i just found the idea of this this temple and where god created uh, and the purpose of the Genesis story uh, a lot more helpful than trying to wrestle with, well, I have to know geology and I have to know genetics and I have to know all these science things that I just don't, I don't have the capacity or the, the willing to really dig in and study these things. But there, there is some really interesting things that you suggest that kind of, again, take the sting out of this us versus science type dynamic. Um, Walton's work is really great, right? Um, And, you know, he was, and I think my work actually ends up helping him quite a bit, actually, here, Mm. too. Mm. Because um, if if you read his work closely and you look at his critics closely, uh, the ones that are really having a hard time with him, you know, the emphasis on authorial intent is great and all that, but he really felt that science really forced him to have to give up on monogenesis or the idea that we all descend from Adam and Eve. Mm. And so he has to do, um, you know, a lot of uh, revisions, not to how we read scripture, I would say, but to real, to how most Christians have understood, um, you know, theology, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
And that is a break, I would say. Uh, you know, it's, and it's not just him. I mean, that's just basically how most people who were taking scripture seriously had to come to terms with evolution. You had to give up on monogenesis. Hmm. Um, that's why, for example, Biologos, uh, you know, emphasizes like a representative Adam and Eve. Maybe Adam and Eve were just chosen and they're representatives. Why do we have to descend from them? The reason why is because um, is because everyone was convinced that um, if Adam and Eve were real people, then we don't descend from them. And it just turns out that uh, that that's just bad science. It's not true. Hmm. Um, and that, you know, if Adam and Eve, even if they were really recent, even if they were as recent as 6,000 years ago, they, they would be ancestors of all of us. So, so it isn't, it isn't, um, you know, something you have to kind of make modifications for the sake of science. I mean, if you want to make those modifications for some other reason, go ahead, but you had to justify it on those terms. You can't do it based on science. So the, well, just take, uh, before, before we dig into that a little bit, can we take a, a little step back just to clarify some terms for, for different people watching this? So just, just to clarify, the monogenesis is the, the Adam and Eve are the only, ans the, the first, first ancestors? or So there's no. a couple different ways to understand it, but it's really helpful to understand it in historical context. It really gets solidified in the, in the discovery of the new world uh, where, you know, the, the the church fathers were uniform essentially in believing that the earth was a globe hmm. and that there so it had an antipode or another side to their the globe but they were all uniform in believing there was no people over there what because they wouldn't have descended from adam and eve and so that's why they just rejected it you can read it in augustine's city of god hmm. um, and that was a major challenge to theology about 500 years ago when you know columbus thought he discovered India, but he really, you know, discovered a new continent. And when it dawned on everyone that there was a new world, quote unquote, mm. with people over there that no one had ever heard of, that had never heard the gospel, mm. that was, uh, that was an epic theological challenge. I would say that was even a far greater challenge than evolution, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so really in response to that, uh, some people said, well, maybe those people don't descend from Adam and Eve. And uh, you could take that in racist ways. You could take that in non-racist ways. <laughs> but mm -hmm. most of the church solidly rejected that. They said, even if you got to put Adam and me really, really in the ancient past, it, you know, you know, the demand of orthodoxy is to affirm that we all descend from Adam and Eve. And that was really a statement about the discovery of the new people in the new world. That wasn't a statement really about people in the distant past. Um, so, Another way to put it is pre-Adamites were rejected as an explanation of uh, co-Adamites in present day. That's not a valid thing to do um, because there are no co-Adamites in present day is, you know, what is the orthodox answer. We all descend from Adam and Eve across the entire mm -hmm. globe. Even those people in America, even those people in Africa and Australia, we all are descendants of Adam and Eve. Right. Um, so that's, that's what the doctrine of monogenesis is. And so now... Some people understand that to mean uh, that Adam and Eve were the only fully human people. Uh, they were the first human-like people on earth ever. Okay. Um, so that's like a strict Catholic position that not all Catholics hold, but as a strict Catholic position, it's like a view, for example, that we only Craig has. But you can't really derive that from scripture very easily at all. 
and uh, and uh, even if you talk to the Catholic philosophers that I've done, they'll say that this is really a theological concern about how you interpret scripture, but we're not qualified to interpret scripture. Mm. And so what's going on now is, and this is where it gets really interesting. It really comes down to how you define human. So in the strictest form, the way to say, um, define monogenesis is the idea that all humans on the globe across all time in the past and to now all descend from Adam and Eve. And they were the first humans on earth and so on and so forth. Now, yeah. here's the thing though, a really ancient and important definition in theology for human is Adam and Eve and their descendants. By that definition, which you can derive from scripture, Adam and Eve were the first of their lineage. And there were no other humans by that definition. Of course, there were human-like people outside the garden. They were homo sapiens. They were had human minds and all that. But that wasn't, that's not human by this definition I just gave you, right? Mm. So even by that strict definition of monogenesis, uh, Adam and Eve um, really are the sole, uh, you know, the, the sole uh, first progenitor couple. Uh, what it really does is it now reorients us towards like a much more interesting question of how are we really going to define human? And if there really were people outside the garden, how do we make sense of them in theology? And these are all really good and fun questions, but it's yeah. not conflict. It's more like exploration and fun. I love could, that. Yeah. Could, could I start? So what was your position, your, your kind of starting point before you started reading, before you started writing the book? Like, where did you start from and where did you, you know, how after writing the book or during that process, did you end up in a different position? Well, I... I, I came with questions. Um, I mean, I didn't have answers. I just wanted to know. And I was really committed to being truthful. So, I mean, one thing that really gets some people in the church kind of annoyed is when I say, I, you know, there really is a lot of evidence for evolution. I've seen it. Hmm. <laughs> it really looks like we share common descent with, with great apes. And I understand that that's a challenging thing for a lot of people to hear. But I also am really committed to being truthful about that. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, I'm not saying that everyone has to agree with me, but I, I feel obligated to be truthful about what I've seen there, right? Hmm. And if I'd seen evidence against uh, against a recent Adam and Eve, that would have been fine. I just would have been truthful about it. I think that that's like what really God called me to do. And that's what I'm committed to do as a scientist uh, and as a Christian, right? Um, and what I was surprised by, actually, as I started studying it and learning, is actually I couldn't even rule out an Adam and Eve as recent as 6,000 years ago. And at the same time, um, there's a book published where the author had claimed that, you know, going back 18 million years, he had evidence that there's no way we could descend from Adam and Eve. Hmm. Um, that was Dennis Venom of the book is Adam and the Genome. Um, it was, it's, you know, still promoted by BioLogos. And at the time I was working with them and I just wrote a review of his book. And that's really how a lot of this started is by writing this review, which turns out they didn't really like very much. Hmm. Um, and I just kind of explained, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, how I just thought he missed a couple things and really, you know, just keep in mind, you know, there's a lot of good things in this book, but just keep in mind that Adam and Eve, you know, if they were 6,000 years ago, would be ancestors of everyone <laughs> and they couldn't even have been de novo created without parents. And, um, and that's entirely consistent with evolution. And, and that just turned out to be, um, um, an extremely surprising claim for a lot of people. <laughs> mm. it it definitely and, uh, is. Just just on that claim, I know it's the synopsis of your book, so everyone should go buy Genealogical Adam and Eve to really get an in-depth view on that. But 
that is quite a new claim i think for many people that science is either silent or can't prove or disprove that adam and eve were the ancestors of all of us with within that time frame so i'm sure you've been interviewed enough on this question do you do you have like a five minute synopsis of like the background well, yeah, I mean, of that. like when we talk about ancestry uh we're not talking about genetics scripture doesn't know anything about dna right mm. and i think a lot of people got really fixated on genetic ancestry it's like the primary way how scientists think about it but genetics is just like a marker it's a tracer um that that has that has gaps actually really large gaps uh, and it doesn't really tell us uh the complete web of parentage going into the past it doesn't do that um and so in a lot of ways, it's like a street light and you're trying to understand what's going on in all of Manhattan, but all you have is a light of a single street light. <laughs> mm. and, right. and if you try and answer questions, thinking all of reality is contained in that fishbowl of, uh, of the street light, right? Then you're going to be very confused. And that's really how people have been approaching this for a very long time, just deeply confused because uh, theology isn't talking about genetics. I mean, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't speak in that type of modern language. That's just kind of a, a strange uh, conceit to place on it. Um, and really, really, it's it's just talking about ancestry, ordinary ancestry, you know, parents and children, and and by that lens, which is called genealogical ancestry in science, um, you know, it, it just changes the story. We're not looking for uh, the sole genetic progenitor of anyone, of everyone. Oh, we're looking for uh, we're looking for you know a universal ancestor of everyone, um, and th th and. One of the, I mean, and, and, I mean, that just changes everything, right? Mm -hmm. Now, when you start to realize that distinction, then a lot of other things happen. Um, you realize, uh, okay, so what is the way that they might really phrase this? The really key question to ask the Genesis tradition to look at history and look at is to see, uh, was there any interbreeding between Adam and Eve's lineage and others? And it turns out that people have been speculating about that for a really long time. Now, a lot of people weren't certain, okay. I mean, if you ask people to kind of give like their cartoon or like their simple explanation, they wouldn't talk about it. But then if you look at their discourse and their discussions, they'll find out that that question about whether or not Adam and Eve's lineage was interbreeding with others in the distant past was an open question. And it wasn't a question that was foreclosed uh, by the, you know, when the monogenesis doctrine was really foreclosed. <laughs> so, um, so at the very least, it's just part of the Genesis tradition. Uh, Genesis tradition is one of, you know, the very common accepted views. Now, um, I think it goes deeper than that, though. I mean, I think uh, I think that the way how scripture works is that it's telling us a story, and no story really intends to tell us everything. It just tells us what it's talking about. Mm -hmm. And so there's gaps in that story. Genesis doesn't present itself uh, as, you know, a hermetically sealed account. It has mm -hmm. lacunae in it, gaps. And uh, you don't want to uh, say that scripture's teaching is what those gaps are. But there's mystery there, and part of the part of the tradition is to wonder, in a midrash, about those those gaps and wonder what could have been, right? And we just find out that those gaps are just really large. In the same way, there's really big gaps in the scientific account that it doesn't tell us everything. There's really big gaps in Genesis, and it turns out the stuff that's really important for the scientific analysis ends up just happens to fall into the gaps of the scriptural account. Hmm. And, and the gaps of the the scriptural account end up falling into the, you know, find end up being what you know where the scientific account is. So it just they just end up being um, two. Uh, they they can be they could be two very um, 
accurate, concrete descriptions of the same physical reality, just from different points of view. Hmm. Well, I just just very quickly. So a lot of um, sort of online Christian articles I've, I've read will will talk about mitochondrial Eve. How does how does that fit into your your story? Is that a good way to to think about? Um, about lineage. It's a, it's a great example of a foil of a way how everyone's been confused. <laughs> okay. Mitochondrial Eve has nothing to do with this. Um, the, even if you believe that there was no interbreeding between Adam and Eve's lineage and others, if you just run simulation, Adam and Eve, I mean, you would just never expect Adam and Eve to be really defined by mitochondrial Eve. That doesn't make any sense. It, uh, mitochondrial Eve would probably be someone who was a descendant of Eve that came around a lot later if there was no interbreeding. If there is interbreeding, most likely, uh, you know, and especially if they were recent and there's a lot of interbreeding, it's most likely uh, that's just a genetic tracer that's kind of arbitrarily picked more for historical reasons and contingent reasons like that, that just doesn't happen to cross paths at all ever with Adam and Eve. It just doesn't tell us anything about them. Adam and Eve could have been just far more recent. There's um, obviously some theological implications for this, which we'll, we'll dive into a little bit. But there's uh, ha having read your book and and sort of I read it around preparing for a, a church conversation on um, on Genesis, the sort of Genesis debate of Young Earth, and found it incredibly helpful in that prep. But it, what kind of pushback do you get on on the whole people outside the garden? stuff or, or um maybe I, I can I, there's a few lines of question that i'm trying to figure out which one to well, go I mean, there's, there's different types of pushback but i'd say yeah. um it's, it's first of all is to talk about what i think is the broadly accepted common ground uh, yeah even by people who are critics um i think that a lot of people come to realize um that there was major misunderstandings on the science here that have been corrected uh, so biologos has changed their position on adam and eve they're still really um, not hospitable to the idea. I can tell you what some of their criticisms are, but they realize and recognize now that they had really misrepresented the evidence. <laughs> and, wow. um, and so, it, I mean, they've known that for, for a few years, but just a couple months ago, they, they finally, you know, were a lot clearer. Well, they, they finally changed their position. They're not very clear that it's a change in position, but we can, we can leave that be for now. Um, you know, a lot of secular scientists, atheist scientists endorsed my book. Um, the director of the NSC, the National Center for Science and Education, positively reviewed it. Jerry Coyne even positively reviewed the book, of all people. I mean, like, no one's coming forward, really. Um, I mean, I'm not aware of any biologists that are coming forward and saying, you know, the science is all wrong here. I mean, there mm. really is a difference between genetic and genealogical ancestry, okay? Mm. Uh, now... Uh, what are the sorts of push pushback you get? Well, what I'd say is really interesting is that it doesn't divide up the way you might think. I've, I've gotten, I mean, I've seen, you know, strong supporters really across the spectrum. Hmm. And I've also seen critics across the spectrum. And some of the strongest critics are not the places you might expect. I mean, like, you know, probably the most staunch critics have been Biologos, uh, who are, you know, a bunch of evolutionary creationists, right? I didn't expect them to be the, uh, the most critical, but it just turns out they are. Um, there's another group, um, and we can talk about them, but honestly, I think the much more interesting conversation is this uh, uh, this 
Well, you know, it's different ways to think about it. I think the reality is for those of the people that really care about Adam and Eve, most people realize that really what scripture is saying is it's not talking about genetics, it's talking about genealogical ancestry. Mm -hmm. And that just opens up a lot of space. Yeah. Now, the where some people are going to disagree, for example, Blaine Lane Craig and Kenneth Kemp and many Catholics, not all Catholics, but many, is they're going to say those people outside the garden, if they have fully rational minds, then they really need to be descendants of Adam and Eve. So this doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And all that means is they just want to push Adam and Eve more ancient in the past. And that's fine. You can do that. I was just looking at the bookends. Of this. Mm -hmm. And um, the question of when humanness arises in the fossil record um, in a way that's important to theology is a separate question altogether, really, mm -hmm. which I didn't address with a great deal of rigor or detail, except for to say that there's a lot of debate within science. And there is. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that, that that's necessary because I don't think scripture really has the same concepts of humanness that we have. I think that's really posed on to it from like our more modern or more more recent frame. But, you know, some people just really disagree with that, like, you know, Bill Craig, and that's fine. Um, and so what he does is he takes uh, what I've done and he just modifies it, which I really welcome him to do. His book comes out in like a, a couple a couple weeks and he just pushes out at me farther back, not because of anything in in, um, in the genetics, but just because of what he sees in the fossil record of where uh, where humanness arises in in, mm. in in our in our past, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, I guess with the sort of lines of humanness, and there's a question in the chat from from our friend Eric. Uh, just in in terms of that humanness outside the garden, uh, sin sin was a big thing. As I was reading the book, trying to work out. Um, ideas of sin and how that impacts people outside the garden you do cover it a little bit but it's just trying to bring some clarity to that would you say would you say the people outside the garden are human in the sense of depends um, what definition you're using so you know okay. so yeah, not, that'd be, that'd be interesting. Human, so. How, how do you define human well, I think human has multiple valid definitions and you have to use the right to set definition for the right right thing we just have to remember that and i would also insist that uh these def different definitions are not coextensive in the past that means that if one's there then the other one has to be there as you go into the distant past maybe they're coextensive now but in the past that's i don't think you can just facilely make that claim all right so um your question was um how do you think about sin well it really helps to actually read romans in entirety and carefully you find out that there's several different words for uh, for sin being used, and even individual words are clearly being used uh, with different definitions. And, and that's in the core passages, like in Romans 4, where he says that, you know, you know, it's because of Adam that death enters the world. Because of Adam's sin, death enters the world. And, he, and, he, and then he clarifies that it's not that uh, he's trying to say there wasn't any sin in the world before the law came. It's just that no one was held accountable. And there's been a historical debate about what he means by the law. Um, some people say it's Moses's law, but then that's a bizarre reading because um, clearly Adam is held accountable for his sin. And, and the passage is literally saying before the law comes, there's no one's holding account. And so for a lot of people have actually suggested Walton would probably go down this path too of saying, well, actually it's talking about the Adamic law in, in Romans five. And so he's actually qualifying the statement about saying that we're all, you know, subject to death because of Adam by, by kind of acknowledging, actually kind of qualifying saying, well, of course there was, you know, there was also, you know, there was 
sin before Adam and Eve. <laughs> and I'm using that word sin doubly there because that's exactly the same word. It's the same words in Greek. He's saying harmartia. Mm. And so um, what you get at is there's a sense of things being wrong, um, uh, being wrong based on what's in our hearts and what the law of God's put there. But then there's also a very big difference between transgressing like a direct edict from God. And so I think one um, valid way to read this is that Adam and Eve were the first people in the garden that were given a direct edict from God. And when they sinned, that had much greater consequences for them and everyone else in a way that no one else had really faced consequences before. And yeah. that doesn't mean that there wasn't people who had done things that were wrong, but God just wasn't holding it against them. And, and he wasn't in relationship to them. He wasn't in a covenantal relationship with them anyways. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, so it just had a different character to it. They weren't violating God's direct commands in the same way that Adam and Eve did. And because uh, of that, um, and because of that, uh, their sin, the reason why we call it the original sin maybe is just that that had consequences that were, um, unique hmm. and, and severe that, that were actually definitive to how we find ourselves now. I think it's really helpful what you just saying, just to clarify my own thoughts. The emphasis on covenantal relationship with God has different circumstances, uh, different consequences. That that was a really helpful way of framing that. So, um, yeah, I appreciate that, Dan. You you look like you're about to to ask something on that. Were you just thinking through? No, I was just, I was just thinking what you, what you were saying about when you said a few minutes ago. You said about what it depends what we mean by human. Um, I guess from a obviously there's a clear a clearer scientific response to that in terms of theologically I mean uh, I well there just, isn't just, to be clear a clear scientific response there is no agreed upon definition in science about what human is hmm. well well I guess what we talk when we talk about human being we talk if we say a member of the of the of the um, the species home you know homo sapiens yeah that is not agreed upon a large number of scientists would sharply dispute that. Right. Now, but some could... would agree with it, though. I'm not trying to say that. I mean, that, that is one view that some scientists have. Um, I think I mean... to say that that's the scientific consensus is completely false. There is no cons consensus right now about how to define human. Right. I mean, we can distinguish between between what is and isn't human. Um... Mm, well, can we? So are Neanderthals human? Like that's a question that there's an immense amount of debate in science about, and a large part of it comes down to people using different definitions of what human is. So, but then when we talk about interbreeding, then obviously we're talking about, you know, doesn't the whole notion of interbreeding assume that there is some difference between? Well, no. So I, I'm really clear when I'm talking about interbreeding, I just mean Adam and Eve's lineage intermixing with others and not really making any statement about them and saying that I have no problem with them being biologically identical. And in fact, if right. there was a lot of interbreeding, they would, they would be biologically identical, right? right? I, now, um, now, some people import into it kind of that starting assumption that they had to be a difference. I think that's a mistake. Now, right. if you want to actually do that, we have to not just import it kind of underneath the table and kind of do all that. We kind of start from the state, from the start and say, well, I actually think that there's a biological difference between these two groups. And then, you know, we can talk about it sensibly, but you can't just assume that and go mm -hmm. forward, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what I was kind of leading into is the fact, well, a more sort of theological understanding of what it means to be human that would be a bit more inclusive of Neanderthals is 
in, in terms of you know who was who who was the you know, who was the atonement intended to be efficacious for you know did it how how wide did that go is it just modern humans or did we you know did christ die for neanderthals or the other human well see these are really good questions and i don't think anyone can actually say that they know right but 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 before we go there i just want to point out that this is part we're coming back to some very ancient and old questions that are part of what it means to be connected to the christian theology right Hmm. these are the exact same questions that people are asking about the antipodians like did christ Hmm. die for the antipodians right and that was actually with far more um, importance because we actually had antipodians on earth at the time. We had to decide if we were going to actually deal with it. So what we're dealing with now has far less urgency than that, to be clear. It's Part not of my ignorance. Really antipodians. Like that. We're talking about Neanderthals and Neanderthals aren't around anymore. Okay. Hmm. Um, but then also beyond that, like there's, there's that old Sunday school question that actually goes back 2000 years really. But wait a minute. Um, what about all the people before Jesus? Did they go to heaven? Right. <laughs> And so uh, scripture is really written towards the people who have heard of the gospel, right? At, in the age, I mean, like the New Testament is really into people who've heard the gospel and had a chance to respond. It's not really addressing very much at all. I mean, you kind of see comments here and there and you can build a solid theology to realize, oh, okay, so I guess Abraham really is going to be in heaven <laughs> and all of these other people. And, and probably God fears are too, even people that weren't even Jewish or probably some of them were going to be, are going to be in heaven too. I mean, I think that that's probably the most sensible thing. Look, I mean, that, that, that's the sort of question we, I mean, but scripture wasn't really concerned in like laying out the clear formula for that for us, because that just wasn't the purpose of, 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 of the new Testament. Mm. Um, to give us clarity on all those details. And so this is just the same. It's just kind of going back into uh, in, a, in a place where there's just more mystery. And so the way how to really think about that is to then start wondering, well, um, you know, if we take the idea that Adam and Eve are recent and there were human-like people in the distant past, even if it's like a homo sapien 100,000 years ago or a Neanderthal back then, well, what was God's relationship with them and what would he do with them? And I think that there is uh, probably one of two possibilities that make a lot of sense. And I can't really decide between the two of them, which one makes the most sense, right? Uh, one is uh, without becoming like, a, you know, a dispensationalist, the idea of a dispensation of grace. Maybe there was just a different era hmm. that there was before Adam where God gave grace by way of Jesus, but in a different way. Um, you know, maybe he walked with people like he walked with Enoch. Who knows, right? Um, that, that's one possibility. And the other possibility, and it could be some combination of these two, is that it was um, a sort of, uh, uh, you know, God just kind of left them to their the devices, which would be a type of like a, an annihilationalism. So I think both those really make a lot of sense. So, I mean, they, they weren't guilty of, um, of breaking a direct command from God. So, you know, God just left, leaves them to themselves. You know, they just they just end up dying and and, and, and that's that, right? <laughs> I mean, those are possibilities. Of course, that doesn't work with some people's understanding of the soul and that's okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there's an opportunity for a lot of debate about what's possible. there. Yeah, I, I guess it gets, it does get sort of theologically murky when you talk about, you know, how, how does one understand the notion of the image of day? You know, like, is it, is it relational? You know, are, did Christ come to die for those who fall within that human, uh, yeah, yeah, human, so human-like group? Who the definition of the Imago Dei is actually, or image of God, is very central to this. So a lot, like, 
the people who want to push Adam and Eve farther into the past are substantialists or structuralists. They really want to see a lot of definitions of human converge to be coextensive in the full past. All right. It's like a Thomistic understanding. Like I said, it's, it's similar to how Bill Craig sees it. Um, I, I don't think that the, the grounding for that view is very strong personally, but that's fine. That's kind of where they're at in it. Um, that's one view. Um, and the way that, uh, the way how actually most people who are exegetes, so that's kind of me the philosopher's view, the, the exegetical view, the way how most people are focused on scripture see it is a totally different way. It's called a vocational understanding, which is just this idea that God actually appoints them as representatives. So the idea of biological humans on earth that um, that are not in the image of God doesn't mean that they don't deserve rights or don't have dignity and shouldn't be treated well. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that they weren't appointed by God as God's representatives, uh, right? Hmm. That's all it means. And and so uh, they so a lot of exegetes. I'd say quite a bit of exegetes. For those that are like more Old Testament scholars, I think quite a large number of them are just completely tracking that point of view because it just ends up not being as much of an issue for them. Yeah. And they're also looking at all the text, which seems to suggest people outside the garden. So, you know, all right. Well, so maybe that, I mean, I'd say that's a very common way to see it. But, um, get, but I'm, I'm more inclined to see it. I'd say in a relational view, I would say, which mm. is more focused on the covenantal side of it. I'm not, I'm not Presbyterian. I don't think I'm, I'm not completely sold on covenantal theology necessarily, but just the idea of what's really unique about Adam and Eve is that God created them whether de novo or not, to be in the garden with them. And he was creating a new humanity uh, that was going to be able to dwell in, in directly in his presence. That's why mm. God made them. And and then they screwed that up. So they ended up being a humanity that is not directly dwelling in his presence. So, so could you say a bit more about people outside the garden in terms of the tradition uh, around that and why some people might be uh, you know, uncomfortable with that notion or, uh, you know, well, if you look at it historically, almost every time, not all the time, um, the idea of people outside the garden has always been conjoined to the idea that not everyone across the globe today descends from Adam and Eve. And so uh, that's uh, that turns out to be not really making sense scientifically or theologically. <laughs> and so when you talk about that, then people often will jump to say, oh, you're trying to say like all those Africans or all those you know, Native Americans or those first people are, don't descend from Adam and Eve, but that's not what I'm saying, okay? And not only that, there is a history that connects this to racism and, and like some very confused ideas of race. So then, you know, it makes it very easy to to, uh, to dismiss it based on a deep misunderstanding, actually, of what's being said. Because I'm not saying that there's people outside the garden and they explain why not all of us descend from Adam and Eve. I'm saying literally the opposite. Maybe there are people outside the garden, but we all still descend from Adam and Eve. It's literally the opposite statement. And so that opposite statement, I think, really changes the analysis pretty dramatically. There's, I was just still pondering the um, what you were saying about the different ways that uh, relationally God has interacted with different people and how that, that doesn't necessarily impact the theology of those who aren't in that covenant. God will interact with them in a different way, possibly not even hold them to account in, in the way that you're talking about. I think that's quite an interesting way of presenting the gospel that I've been sort of thinking through as we present an overview of scripture. It makes that makes sense of 
the key points that often you'll hear if, if someone's going to do the overview they'll say god has a relationship with adam and eve then you'll have a relationship with noah and these these representatives throughout noah is a very much linked to adam and eve in the way that he sets up a garden after the flood he's like the new noah new covenant then you have abraham new covenant blessing the nations the whole idea is that they're bringing god's grace to the rest of creation and who is in the rest of creation well surely it's these connections to people outside the garden so there's they keep failing in doing that and oftentimes they bring curses on people that rather than blessing and you have that with abraham in abraham's interaction with egypt and eventually though through christ we then have the interaction that the covenant is with all nations all people but i, I find that a really interesting I, I, there's this still though the question but it it's there all along, I suppose, is what about people? I think, I think it is there all along. Um, and yeah. I think that that's what makes it so comfortable in a lot of ways. Um, mm. and, and I think one thing that also is really helpful is uh, it makes a lot of sense of what's going on, you know, and uh, a lot of the, the big divides that we've seen. So, you know, exegetes have generally not been as concerned with monogenesis. Um, because mm. when you look at Genesis, it's very hard to make a strong case for monogenesis. Mm. Yeah, um, uh, at least Old Testament exegesis, I should say. It's really in the New Testament, and <laughs> the New Testament passages like Roman five, uh, like First Corinthians fifteen, First Corinthians seventeen. Mm. It's really there that that you can start to see the scriptural basis, and it's really in the, in in the context of you know church traditions of monogenesis. Like I said, that it gets really clarified that this is really what those passages have to mean. We all descend from Adam and Eve. Mm. Um, and so, so how do you make sense of that? Well, I think it really helps to think maybe maybe Adam becomes ancestor of everyone across the globe, but it didn't start out that way. In the beginning, God had a purpose for him to, 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 to bless all of people across the earth, but then they screwed that up. Hmm. And then in, in the same way, when Jesus comes, God has a purpose in him. Hmm. And you know, Adam was in a perfect world uh, without sin, and he sinned and screwed it up for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Jesus enters our mess, mm. well, in a, a completely sinful world, and he lives without sin and makes a way for all of us. I mean, it, you can see the parallel so clearly. Mm. So, what is the in terms of you know, if we read sort of popular science, we hear about the out of Africa idea or you know occasionally we've you know we, we identify new um you know evidence of some of that but how, how does think how does that fit into this picture that's just about being... the genetics so that's the story of right. the people outside the garden right i mean it's our story too right yeah because there are ancestors too but that just isn't the story that that genesis is telling genesis isn't talking about the material or the biology or the genetic origins it doesn't tell us much at all about the people outside the garden. They're just kind of there in the background, right? It's really telling us about how he entered into our world. And he he formed a covenant that was broken. Hmm. Um, and that had an impact on all of us. And that's the broken relationship that, that, he's, that he's repairing through Christ. So uh, it does seem quite groundbreaking for, for maybe, maybe because we've just been brought up in this paradigm that Adam and Eve could be the common ancestor between 
myself. Well, and you, you've got Indian heritage. You've got uh, like how how I guess how how does that happen that in such a short amount of time, six thousand years from from everything that I understand of like what's taught in scientific evolution, that the idea that there's these connections that are so recent um, to have a common ancestor. Yeah, it kind of turns everything upside down, and it turns out that um, that you know the idea of there kind of being a candelabra <laughs> mm. is really mm -hmm. outdated. It's just not consistent with the evidence of you know just kind of like this tree of different races or you know even human species kind of branching off. It's mm. it's much more like a trellis um, or like a fenestrated river mm. where um, there's populations forming and then falling apart. And then moving to other places and breeding with others and you know and it just they're, they're all far more transient now we've come to really see it differently um than that right and so what actually what actually caused us to see things differently large part of it was actually colonialism hmm. um so you know remember columbus sails the ocean blue he discovers like a new world right and you know it's kind of like this moment where um you know nations in europe have really reached a certain level of technological pro progress right uh the thing there's something pretty striking about boat travel too it allows you to kind of skip across really large areas of land to see people that are really far apart without seeing all the variation in between hmm. and so if you can see all the variation in between the differences don't look so different right <laughs> but hmm. if you kind of take like a gradient from you know like a dark gray to a light gray then you kind of erase everything in between then they kind of look totally different right so then all of a mm. sudden it just made everything look really different right <laughs> um mm. uh, this is also kind of really close to the rise of how uh, you know like the naturalists that are looking and realizing that it's that there's that the animal life in all these places are really different too um evolution does become part of the story too because people are realizing Hey, you know, it, it really seems like all these different animals evolved. Maybe the same thing is going on with these different types of people across the globe, right? Right. And so, uh, and and it, it ends up being really convenient as well because, you know, when you meet someone of a different culture who looks very different from a different part of the world, right? If you don't have that many interactions with them normally, um, you have a culture clash with them. Like they don't mm -hmm. understand how to do things that you know how to do, and vice versa. But you just focus on the ones that they don't know how to do. So you have a negative view of things like their intelligence and their ability mm -hmm. to do things, right? And so um, the idea that there is different races, different biological types of human, whether it be species or subspecies across the globe that had different um, biological uh, intrinsic abilities uh, just became very strong. It ended up becoming a strong justification for uh, colonialism mm. and like the divine right of Europeans to go take take lands and mm. even call it the new world, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, need to, people who lived there. <laughs> and then it comes to this conceit too. It's like, oh, we've all been separate. It's just new technology that allows us to kind of mix now. But you know, mm. if you just go back not that far from now, we were just like very separate and never really crossed boundaries. Just turns out that's all mythology. It's not true. It's just not mm. true. Uh, we're all far more connected than other animals. Like, I mean, if you went to Australia, there was something called like a a Tasmanian wolf that looked like a wolf, but it was actually a marsupial. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Um, and it could have been that way. I mean, when we caught, went across the world, we could have met like like Klingons living down in Australia or something. Right. You know, something that looked really human, but really had a different origin. Does that make sense? Mm, mm, yeah.
It's just so, not what we found. We found out that there was people that were just like us. I mean, mm -hmm. and we didn't realize at first, to be clear. We, we, we saw people that were tribal and we thought they were stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, now, one of the things that really changed actually was, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, you know, I think it's very hard, I would say, to go back in time to think about that because there's certain experiences that we all have now that they didn't actually have, right? Um, and I think that's important. To, to keep mind up like so for example we all know that there are brilliant african americans that um, do excellent academic work and have phds and, and do that we all know that right yeah. if you met um a person from india in college you're not thinking that i mean does this person have the ability to learn english um intrinsically you're not you're not wondering whether or not he can graduate or any of that right <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that, you know, if you take a, a kid from any part of the globe, treat them with love, kindness, them, and education, you know, into give them all the advantages of our society, that they're going to end up just like us. They're just going to be different mm. on the surface level, right? We know that now. Yeah. yeah. People didn't know that. Um, even back 100 years ago, or even maybe even 60 years ago, people didn't realize that. They just thought mm. that, that they didn't have the experience of, well, so, you know, so I went to the, the University of California. So that's a melting pot. It's full of immigrants, right? Hmm. Around 70% of, uh, I went to UCI, 70% of, of, of the student body was Asian. Right. Well. There's a ton of uh, Hispanic. There wasn't many African-Americans. You go to the UC system, though, you see a ton of, I mean, UCLA, you see a ton of African-Americans. You see people from across the entire friggin' globe, <laughs> right? Hmm. And you and you can't really separate people's intelligence or capacity to succeed based on that. Mm. Yeah. And so that's like a grand experiment that just shows that in some really important ways that we're all equally human. Mm. Um, I mean, there might be subtle differences you find, but to trace that down to biology would be a really, really bad science. I mean. A lot of this is going to be related to other things too, like you know, uh, you know, social and economic factors have a huge impact. We found. Absolutely, yeah. So, so that experience that we know now, even the most racist person out there now knows mm. that you know a black person can read and write. Like there isn't any racist person out there who doesn't believe that that's true right now, right? Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing: if you go back like 500 years ago, that was a question mark, uh, like over a lot of people's heads. Mm even for people that weren't racist because they still kind of started that assumption like, Oh yeah, this tribal person is clearly very different than us. I mean, they're, they're different to this, this type of human have the ability to read and write. That was a question mark. Mm. And that doesn't mean they were less than or whatever. It's just, that's kind of the question. We're past that now. So, I mean, I, I think, so I think part of what's going on, you're asking like, this is pretty world turning and I, I'd say it is, but a big reason why is that we've just, we're really kind of um, working through a lot of really broken understandings about race. Mm. And we have some more work to do uh, to, to, before this really becomes intuitive. That was a bit of a sidetrack, but I hope that's helpful. No, that's really helpful. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I work across cultures at a local university here and totally get exactly what you're saying. And even the uh, engaging with local church and local, local people, uh, and even in, in myself, when someone doesn't speak your language well, there is something about that that you inherently assume <laughs> that there's an intelligence issue because of a lack of understanding and getting through that and just 
speaking clearly and taking time and you, you notice that intelligence isn't the issue it's just language um and and so there's there's something within us that when we see difference there some someone yeah, and, and so apology. race ended up i would say being like this false theory of origins mm. it, yeah it's just a totally false theory of origins it started in theology actually um yeah this idea called polygenesis by la Pereira, right but then it gets picked mm. up in science as well too it just ends up being this powerful theory for explaining differences yeah and justifying uh justifying abuse frankly mm. Mm. yeah it's horrendous and horrendous. Um, and so that's that, that that's what it was. And, you know, mm. I think we're still undoing that. And so the reality is, like you said, you know, um, it's funny, you know, history is really told from a Eurocentric point of view. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Even when we say the new world, everyone knows we're talking about Africa. I mean, we're not talking we're talking about, you know, mm. America, where I'm from. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, and everyone learns European history uh, and people will get very possessive about that. I, I think we should learn European history because, frankly, we're all Europeans. We all descend from Europeans. But the thing about it is we all descend from Asians, too. So why not learn about those ancestors, too? Mm. We mm. also all descend from Africans. We also descend from Americans. So we should all be, we should be learning all of that history uh, and really realizing, you know, the totality of who we are, not just one narrow piece of it. Yeah. This has gone into a more cross-cultural uh, conversation than I anticipated, but it's, it's really interesting, just the, the shared humanity that we have across the globe um dan do you have another question lined up anymore? well i was just going to think that what what are what are some of the issues that you're uh, you know, the, the idea that you're proposing what does it what does it leave unresolved well i mean i think it just opens up a lot of things that are possible i mean so it mm -hmm. just leaves a lot unresolved because like you know i mean it could have been as recent as six thousand years ago but maybe there was ancient as two million years ago <laughs> and like so there's like that that's a pretty big range right yeah mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, I kind of, <laughs> I, I think it's legitimate to have them really recent, but I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to force anyone down that path. I mean, in that sense, this isn't really arguing for a particular position. It's really just trying to clarify what the science actually says mm. in relation to what theologians are actually even talking about, what the actual tradition is, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, um, and then, you know, there's these big questions about how we define what human is and how we think about how to relate with one another when we disagree and how to mm. actually, um, there's there there is so many open i had like a whole chapter of open questions if i recall right yeah 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 uh, or i just kind of collected uh, all the questions that i that that didn't come up in other places to just kind of explore them and there's also big questions about how we think about the relationship between science and and christian knowledge too like you know one of the reasons why uh, for example, biologos has been critical and some people are critical they're saying well there's no evidence for it well i mean i think there is actually evidence for every single claim I make scientifically. There's evidence that Adam and Eve are possible as recent as 6,000 mm. years ago. There's positive evidence that they're possible. Okay. And I'm making a very limited claim that way. Mm. But I think, I think really at the root of what, what's behind that, like evolutionary creationist sort of objection is really a deep misunderstanding of, of, of our faith, frankly, where, you know, if you just look at the resurrection, I, don't, I can't produce any genetic evidence for the resurrection. You know, I, I can get some hints of it by looking at, you know, radio dating of prophecies in Isaiah, but that's certainly not definitive. I mean, you have to go to other ways to know that Jesus really rose from the dead. Mm. And I believe that he rose from the dead, but it's not because genetics told me, for goodness sakes. And why would I even think that genetics would tell me? 
And mm. so I think Adam and Eve, if they're de novo created, for example, I think it's very similar to that. It really comes down to whether or not you really believe scripture or not. Um, and what you think it says, you know, maybe you really believe scripture, but you don't think it's teaching the Nova Christian. Fine. You have no argument for me. Um, for, for people uh, listening, what do you mean by de novo? I just mean de novo uh, the way how it's typically meant. It means from new, which means like created specially by God without parents, which is how most people have really understood it. Uh, you know, they just understood Adam and Eve to have been just like formed out of the dust by God and created. Now, there's some people have recently come up with other readings of, of scripture, and that's fine. Maybe, maybe they're valid. I'm, uh, I'm not here to police that. But that's not how most Christians have understood it. And maybe most Christians were wrong. But what we can know for sure is that that's not in conflict with the evidence. It's not in conflict with science. Hi there. This is Phil Dunkoff. Thank you so much for listening to the Critical Witness podcast. If you like what you hear, please do uh, subscribe, share the episode, and write a review. It will help others find us. And if you really like what you hear and want us to grow, please do consider supporting us through patreon.com forward slash critical witness. Enjoy the rest of the show. So what are... Oh, go on, Phil. I'm just, I'm just pondering. So I don't really have a question, but I just find it really interesting. I'm wondering if, if some of this is also where the pushback is coming from. Something that I've noticed in, in a lot of apologetics over the last few years um, is is making sure that people have the right answer for everyone uh, who, who approaches, rather than an answer for the hope. And and so I think some of it is that what you are opening up is that actually there's a spectrum here you don't have to have the answer that is the right one but there is there, there is openness here you can have a humble position but you that and that's fine that's probably where we should be on, on a lot of things within scripture and i think there's an aspect of the origins debate particularly where people land in their place their position and their dead set that that's the only way to read scripture the only way to read science and therefore you're coming along and going actually no it could be all three it could be all four <laughs> and and let's just be humble and interact as christians and find some common ground and some unity and people are like well that means i kind of have to like relinquish all that well yeah i mean so one of the reasons why i think it's been hard for some people right so they have to kind of give up on the sense of conflict that they've had and, and maybe like a type of one-upsmanship at times mm over their neighbor. And I think that's been really hard for people. Um, uh, that, that, that's been really, really hard for some people. I think other people are really concerned. Maybe even some of the same people, uh, are really concerned that the views that they hold are going to get booted off the Christian camp. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. that really could happen too. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I get that. Uh, I mean, I'm sympathetic to it, but I don't think that really gives us a right to misrepresent science to people. I think we have to be truthful when their beliefs that they think are really important really are consistent with the evidence. And we, we have to be okay with that, um, even if that means that they don't like our beliefs in the end and say that those aren't those aren't valid. So one of the key places that's really come up is, uh, you know, one of, one of Biologus's real goals is to really legitimize uh, Christian's Christian theology and Christians that don't think Adam and Eve are real people in a real past that are myth purely mythological. Mm. 
Now, just speaking for myself personally, I'm sympathetic to that goal because I don't think our faith is based on Adam and Eve. I think it's based on who Jesus is. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, they, they, they've had some persecution over that topic. You know, people have lost jobs and livelihoods and been kicked out of denominations and things like this. Mm. Um, but at the same token, you know, um, you know, like I understand that one of the ways how people who go through that have kind of found some peace is thinking that they were more aligned with science than those other people. Mm. But, you know, maybe that's just not true. Uh, maybe that really is just a theological uh, disagreement that really isn't about a disagreement with science. And maybe science really doesn't make space for a historical Adam and Eve, even in some of the more rigid ways. And, and you have to work out whether or not it's okay in, you know, a, a particular denomination, for example, to take a mythological Adam and even in some sort of other debate that has nothing to do with science because it certainly doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think one of the, I think the, the primary issue where, where people, it, it makes people uncomfortable is the whole, we've already talked about is the whole notion of sin. And uh, that seems to be always, always connected to, you know, if there aren't, if there weren't, why are you speaking for yourself or for others? Because I'm not sure yeah. if that's that common well, of an issue. You're talking maybe for yourself? No, 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 no. I, I, I genuinely think I think if, if every I would say every young earth creationist I've ever spoken to, the primary issue they have with um well, one it's of the primary issues they have with evolution death. Mm. Well, so if you talk to the young earth creationists, what really boxes them into the view isn't really sin; it's death. And not just human death, but animal death. So they have a particular theology that doesn't actually, um, I mean, it arises in a very particular place. It arises really from Seventh-day Adventism about 150 years ago. Um, and it was conjoined there even with vegetarianism, with this idea that animal death in any form is wrong. I mean, it's just not part of God's good plan. A good God would not allow death. A good God would not make a world without death, I mean, a world with death. Now, that is a view. I mean, it's part of the Seventh-day Adventist view, and it, it's been inherited by most young earth creationists. It's just not in Scripture. Scripture doesn't teach that. And it's not, it's, and it's not actually really visible in the Christian tradition, uh, you know, really before maybe about 500 years ago. Um, you do see a little bit in the Protestant Reformation. But, you know, if you're getting back before that, I mean, it's essentially non-existent. Like the church fathers uh, really just did not have the view that animal death was uh, an intrinsic evil. They didn't see it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so it's, it, it, it's not about sin. I mean, the, the question is, can a good God, I think this is the real question. Can a good God, is it consistent with a good God's character to create a world where beings are temporary where they come to an end? And I think it should be obvious that, of course, God has the right to make temporary beings. He's not constrained to only make people that are going to live forever and that are never going to die. That's crazy. Why? I and mean, what would actually restrain him that way? He has a right to make temporary beings. And there's a lot of good that comes with temporary beings. Um, and, of course, you know, he wanted to give us something better too he's offering us eternal life <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so i'm not trying to say he can't he can't go that way either but to say that he can't possibly be a good god if he made a world with death in it i think is just a complete departure from the christian tradition yeah i mean the, i think yeah, def, yeah. I think Sorry, def and, def and the, the problem of predation 
uh, 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 one of those sort of core issues. But I do, I do think uh, I will. But in terms of sin, I think if a lot of young earth creationists think there have to be a literal Adam and Eve from which sin arose, from which we require redemption and forgiveness from. And mm. so there is this deep, deep seated discomfort with this idea that they are. Uh, mythological that they are re or representative. Well, so, um, so, but we, it's not so, extreme. So even if we get away from the young Earth creationist point of view, yeah, there's a lot of people who are old Earth creationists, for example, or you know, from a, yeah, I think it's. But you know, I, I do think that there's a framing that's helpful. I don't think it's really sin per se, because not all um, uh, of the church tradition would understand original sin that term as important even though they have some version of it well, i think a better way to put it is to say some understanding of the fall a historical fall yeah which is a description of sin what's well, more than just that well sin is you know part of i it's mean part of that but it's not just that i mean the fall is bigger than just yeah absolutely um and so it, well, the key thing is there's a discrete event in the past in which like God had a plan that ended up getting subverted by the actions of like our progenitor. Right. <laughs> and mm -hmm. that, that is really an important event in understanding how we got here and how we're getting out of it. That that's kind of like the, the mere Christianity sort of explanation. Like that's pretty, it's like a paraphrase of CS Lewis. Mm. It's how a lot of people have understood it. And so, yeah, you, you do need that. But that doesn't mean that there weren't other people who have done wrong. It just means that there's something important about what Adam and Eve did that had a bigger impact on the rest of us. And it's important for explaining how we are where we are now and what and, you know, and how how Christ's sacrifice gets us out of that. And like I said, I think that that actually is entirely preserved without modification. Uh, in you know, in, in what I put forward, so I don't, I don't actually see the conflict there. Yeah, I just think it, I, I know so many people that would feel a, a visceral, almost disgusting when you start talking about a, some sort of progenitor. You know, like it's when they. I think a lot of people uh, quite. I think they're wrongly in terms of how they let you, you know, like look at scripture in terms of a you know of a, a modern scientific lens for looking back at the the first um you know chapters of genesis they see these as two um not only biographical people but genetic the, the origins of of humanity arose at those two people to so to um to accept there's this discomfort to it yeah but at the same time those people. same people are often wondering about nephilim and yeah and and about interbreeding between you know angels and i mean so so there's like an inconsistency there right mm -hmm. so those nephilim which are supposed to be like the the product of you know angel misbreedings that shows that you know i mean how do you know you don't have nephilim dna in you? yeah <laughs> true i mean you don't i mean scripture doesn't say and so so i think even in that account i think that there's like this uh lacunae this gap where you know you do it. And, I, and I'd say that's what's, what's going on. I think what, what, this is where the separator is. So, you know, I mean, I, I talk with a lot of young earth creationists too, and I'm friends with a lot of them. A lot of them really like this. And a lot of them have changed the position. Others haven't, but they're like, hey, you know, if that's what my kid ended up believing, I would actually think it's great. I think that's a faithful view, right? Mm. Um, now, some of them are totally opposed to it. So what's the difference? Um, I think a big part of it isn't actually even about scripture. It's not even about these theological things, it really has to do uh, with, uh, with uh, you know, this worldview of anti-evolutionism. There's some young earth creationists that 
are young earth creationists because of scripture. And for them, they've generally not had as much of a problem with what I'm doing. Yeah. There's some young earth creationists that are that way because they want to oppose or they feel the need to oppose evolution. Those people will tend to have a problem. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and I think this really ends up, you know, cutting through camps for that reason. You know, it, it really kind of reveals and brings to the surface who's there to oppose something and who's there to affirm something. Yeah, I could, I could definitely picture people I've interacted with where it's definitely an opposition to to evolution because, and generally this comes around worldview apologetics, um, where everything's everything you are is encapsulated in your worldview and therefore evolution can only come from a naturalistic, atheistic worldview. Therefore, any Christian who accepts evolution will is, is assuming a worldview that is not a Christian biblical one, uh, and and therefore we must oppose everything. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it, I could definitely picture those, and it, it, I find it fascinating. Your book does cross those different lines in in a really interesting way, where you've got everyone on all camps in all camps who are like, yeah, this is interesting and good. <laughs> and then oh, this, well, <laughs> this, different that that affirms is really interesting, right? In a way that it, it, it's like aligned with mainstream science, right? But it also mm. affirms a historical atom, yeah. even more literal than like someone like uh, Hugh Ross uh, reasons to believe would take it. So, mm. Mm. Uh, I mean, the, the real key difference is just like making space for people outside the garden. And I, and I just don't think that scripture really rules that out. And I don't think mm. theology rules it out. Yeah. Um, and, you know, making space in science for a, a lot of things that are outside science, too. And, and science doesn't rule out a lot of stuff, too. It doesn't tell us it happened. It doesn't rule out. It just turns out that these just end up being two mutually consistent but different accounts of the same physical reality I mean, that's just that's the possibility and if that's true if adam and eve were just six thousand years ago it's mm. certainly true if they're more ancient or you know or you know they are there's just that's just like one bookend one bracket in terms of what's possible and so um you know by legitimizing that bracket it uh, it's just very it would just legitimizes a gigantic range of possibilities I'm just most surprised that Jerry Coyne said something positive about your book. <laughs> well, if you could read it, I mean, so he was like caught in a rock in a hard space because when my book came out, like everyone was on his case to like put down the creationists on this. Cause that's the thing, but you know, I, I've been interacting with him privately. He'd even like read uh, one of the chapters or uh, some stuff and get some feedback. I, I mentioned him in the book too. Oh, great. In the first and last chapter. So I let him review that before I submitted my final draft to get his feedback. So he knew the book was coming and that all happened. Um, and uh, Nathan Lentz, who's an atheist and a good friend of mine, was also talking with him as well. Um, and, you know, in the end, he basically says, okay, the science is right here. Right. But he had to kind of make a fight about the theology of it. And, of course, he's an atheist. He doesn't he doesn't believe miracles happen. So, of course, he doesn't think the noble creation of Adam and happen. So, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... You know, what I liked about it, though, is at least he was upfront about that. I mean, I and, you know, it, it I think it just also it just surprised a lot of people, too, frankly, because the science in what I wrote is just really solid. And the points I'm making are just very limited. I'm not trying to say that I have evidence that Adam and Eve exist 
saying something's different. I'm saying I have strong evidence that if they did exist, that's a conditional, right? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Then they would be ancestors of all of us. And, and that seems to be what scriptures, you know, a lot of people think scripture is teaching. So, so maybe there isn't as much conflict. Yeah, so it's, a, it's an interesting one. But yeah, no, I, I mean, Jerry Coyne, I've read quite a bit of his, his his blog over the years and often very critical of, of, of Christianity specifically. So it's great that he's, I think that says a lot about the about the book and the ideas you're, you're proposing that he can, he can, um, you know, with all honesty, you know, support what you're, what you're saying whilst, um, you know, disagreeing with some of the assumptions we might bring um, to that evidence. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really, really encouraging. Um, yeah, so I think this also ends up countering what a lot of people have said that, you know, science is really based on, you know, atheistic materialist point of view. Well, if that's really the case, then how did it make space for the novocreation creation of Adam and Eve? I think the reality is that science is secular in the sense that it's pluralistic. It doesn't really actually come with those sorts of pre-commitments. And, uh, and it's a lot more fair uh, to different points of view than we sometimes give credit. I mean, now, of course, fairness also means not just accepting different points of view, but also criticizing and shredding bad points of view. Mm. And in science, it isn't really about your conclusions as much as it is about your reasoning to get to those conclusions, typically. And I think Christians in general have really um, not made good... Uh, well, we've had a pattern of not making good arguments for God in science. And that's not all true of everyone, and it's not true mm. of all cases. But that, but that's that's the core of the issue. It's just a lot of our arguments are not good, and instead of you know refining them or letting go of them and finding better ones, we've sometimes just really doubled down and tripled down and quadrupled down on them. And scientists really hate that. Mm. So if there's you, you said that there's um you know quite a, a broad range of uh, you know if if Adam and Eve were uh, literal people could be as uh, close as six thousand or as far did you, did you say a couple of million? Uh, I think. Yeah, I mean, um, interesting. So, I mean. It could be as, it could be any time more ancient than six thousand years ago, which right. means really any time. I mean, there's no there's nothing in science that really tells us. It really comes down right. to this question of like, what do you think Scripture is telling us? Is there so human? So where do you fall? So where, where do you fall? What's your what's your your position when you when you? I mean, I'm not an expert. I don't know if people should really care what I think about it. <laughs> Just interested. Like I said, I, there's like some very focused points. I don't think that, I think that there are multiple valid definitions of human. Right. It's a mistake to think that all of those definitions are coextensive in the past. I think that the Genesis tradition makes very clear that there is an immense amount of speculation about people outside the garden. So it's really a recovery of the tradition. To, right. to consider that. Mm. I think also scripture is not talking about genetics, uh, but it might be talking about genealogy and genealogical descent. And, you know, most Christians through history have understood, uh, so that's not a statement about me, right? That's just a statement about, that's like a historical claim. Mm. Most Christians through history have really understood Adam and Eve as recent, de novo created, ancestors of all of us. It just turns mm. out that's not in conflict with science. That's not in conflict mm. with evolutionary science. So do you find yourself just comfortable sitting in a a position of I'm okay with these tensions? Like, because it's, it's something that I'm finding in my own theology that there's there's various things I I will never be able to say for certain. I'm quite happy for sitting in the middle of these different views, seeing the strengths in each, and just kind of going, okay, <laughs> I can't really explain my, I can't really say I'm set on it, this position, but I know it's kind of in the middle 
of these. I can see them all, explain them all. But that's, that, that is a kind of a position in its own right, but it's allowing the tensions to just be there. Yeah, and sure. And I also think that it's okay to have opinions. So like if mm. I was really pressed, like I do think in a recent anatomy makes more sense. I'm, I'm more a biblical theologian if I was to pick mm. than a philosophical theologian, right? I'm more yeah. drawn to the exegetes than the philosophers. But hey, you and me both. I recognize yeah. that there's people like Bill Craig out there that exist, and you know, kind of <laughs> them and and I, I don't begrudge them. I'm trying to help them too, right? Mm, mm. Um, so then, I think the question comes like, if, it, if our goal is not to all come to the same answer, what is our goal? What is our purpose here? I think that's really what is like the real question. I think this is where I think it's helpful to reframe things from ideas to relationships. Mm. I think we should be asking what the original purpose or what could be um, this conversation. And I think it could be a place where we're understanding each other better, um, understanding ourselves better, that we're really trying to, we're, you know, finding a theological voice that makes sense of real issues in the world. Um, and that's a fun conversation that's inviting other people in. It's, it's, it's less about conflict and it's more about fun. Mm. And I think that's what it could be. Um, and I think I think it's going to be hard for some people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah especially those who want to be for right. Some people, it's going to be like a breath of fresh air. I mean, like this mm. is really this is a real opportunity. I mean, for a long time, we've had a ton of mutually exclusive positions. Mm. Now, now we have an opportunity for you know a different sort of interaction and role. So you know, we can still hold on to our points of view. I mean, maybe you reject evolution. You just can't reject it because it's in conflict with Genesis anymore. Or maybe there's other reasons to reject it. I mean, certainly Discovery Institute will give you the long list of reasons to reject it that have yeah, nothing to yeah. do with Genesis, right? Fine. Um, maybe you um, you reject Genesis and you're an atheist listening. Okay, fine. But you can't reject it because of science. Mm. And I think this is actually where uh, it gets to be really interesting. Some of the interviews I've had that have been the most interesting is where people have talked about how they came to their current position because they were certain there was a conflict. Like maybe they became an atheist because they just couldn't reconcile Genesis with evolution, but now they can see how it could work. So that's an interesting conversation to have. Yeah, that's a really interesting conversation. There's also Christians that have just kind of abandoned, um, you know, certain types of Christianity, even though they're still Christians because of the conflict. I mean, that's an interesting conversation to have. Mm. You know, there's a whole bunch of Christians that were out there representing mainstream science that, that weren't that weren't putting out good science. I think there's a really interesting conversation to figure out like what's going on mm. and how do they make that right? Um, and being reluctant to change on that is a real interesting thing. It just, just to sort of come back to the, the, the whole point of being a Christian is to recognize that you could be wrong, isn't it? That you, that's the whole point of repentance. <laughs> like we, we should in all our positions be, be humble. Yeah, but origins and... isn't about that type of Christianity. Origins is about, um, the origins of conversation, like the like the creation evolution debate, it's about being right and, and mm, proving everyone yeah. else you're right and claiming the authority of science. That's what it really is about for yeah, a lot yeah. of people. And I, I just don't think that that's an authority that Christians should be after in that way. I mean, Amen. Yeah, totally. Like, <laughs> and, and frankly, it ends up being um, a very thin appeal to authority. Um. Science doesn't work that way. It doesn't work by appeals to authority when you get right down to it. Many people appeal to science, all right? Yeah. But science itself doesn't work by appeals to authority. 
Um, that's how um, consensus changes. Like when we talk about the scientific consensus, it's not because we think the scientific consensus is correct. It's just we're trying to be truthful in describing, you know, mm -hmm. what the people have looked into and closely really see. And we can, we're often saying we think the consensus is wrong for this reason. And good scientists can make their case and show how the consensus is wrong and thereby change the consensus. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yeah, I, um, I mean, I think my book is actually an example of that um, where, you know, it, it, it's really changed the consensus. And it wasn't because what, uh, what I was saying was the consensus initially. Mm. It's because it was a strong argument that changed the consensus. And that's what uh, makes, that's part of what makes it good, interesting science, but not because it was appealing to the authorities. See how that all makes sense? Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. 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 So the question then is like, if you don't actually really understand things enough, if you're not really willing to enter into the back and forth of, of like, you know, constructive pushback and dialogue and even like harsh critique, it's not really science in the end. Mm -hmm. um, it's just an appeal to the authority of science. And I just don't know how well that works right now. And mm -hmm. so even if you're appealing to, um, even if you're appealing to things that are that science has gotten correct, I mean, why should anyone trust you if that's all you have? And I, I don't think that anyone really will. I think it, one of the um, the fascinating things I find is um, certain people try and certain groups of Christians try and defend their position from science. They're often engaging with science that's decades out of date. Like they're engaging with school textbooks from 20 years ago, 30 years ago, from what the way evolution is presented then, which is vastly different, you know, as, as, you, as you know, as you get, you get you know, more information, um, you're always paying catch up with what's been published. Um, and, and, it, and, I, and I think that's why I, I found you know, why your, your ideas are so refreshing, because it, you, you, you give legitimacy to scientific legitimacy to a broader range of views, actually saying, no, it's not, it doesn't, one particular view doesn't have to be this stumbling block to Jesus. It's like, right, if you know you have to you have to have this right understanding of genesis and if you don't then you know yeah you know it's funny that you said that um there was a person who posted on the peaceful science forum recently it was it was a great note he was saying well he actually came in with this big anti-evolution post at first and you know he got shredded by the scientists there i mean i was nice to him but he got shredded because it wasn't it didn't really make a lot of sense what he's saying but he wrote back and said that he finally got my book and read it and then he realized that he'd actually been making a big mistake. He actually, he'd been arguing about evolution with one of his atheist friends. And then when he got the book, he told them about the book and showed it to him. And then it turned into this conversation about Jesus. Well, there you go. And uh, why he actually believes that Jesus rose from the dead. And um, well, that's great. <laughs> that's what we're supposed to be doing. Like sharing people like interesting science that we can talk about, learn about the world together, be wrong with them about it too. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And have them teach us and do this and then have them say, wow, tell me why you follow Jesus. Yeah. Why, tell me why you have hope in him because you aren't like this defensive person that can't admit you're wrong. That mm -hmm. has to invent this alternate view of reality to justify yourself. You're, you're, you're like an honest, genuine person like me. I want to know more about this person you follow. That's what it's supposed to be like. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, and and I, I I just love that. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Like the, the core of our faith is not Adam. I mean, Adam is important to theology. Okay. The reason why it's important is because the past is important to theology. It's the same reason why scientists care about evolution is because history is important. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's the same reason, I mean, history is just important 
right? We, we care about it. That's why Adam and Eve is important. But Jesus is different. He's he's like a different type of reality. He's truth in a mm. different sort of way. Mm. And that's that's the foundation. That's the cornerstone of everything. I mean, that's, that's the one I found is greater than anything I found in science. And, mm. and I think that uh, that's, I think, really the turn. That's the twist that you could have um, and that you're meant to have. This incredibly helpful and just really encouraging way to sort of start bringing this to a bit of a close, just aware of your time and uh, where we're at time-wise here. Um, but just really helpful and just to kind of clarify one of the things I was talking about where we're sort of attacking evolution as a different worldview. And, and it's something I'm finding in apologetics, uh, the sort of evangelistic and apologetics conversation at least on youtube there is this culture to attack worldviews and and make everything a worldview uh and then it becomes well you have to change your worldview before you can actually enter this conversation of G with about jesus i don't I think. think that that's true at all i mean you don't see any discussion of worldviews when you know paul is on, on the agapagus no exactly yeah that's 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 my point is th this is going back to that kind of like let's let's deal with where people are at show them jesus rather than having to undermine a, a, an idea and, and, of and understand people too right mm -hmm. like actually i mean like you don't have to agree with atheism to understand a particular atheist and why they are where they are and realize that there's mm -hmm. multiple types of atheists too right yeah 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 um i, I think you know and frankly, you know, some of them make pretty good friends, you know? Yeah, they're, not, they're generally nice people is what I've found. Yeah. <laughs> and some of them, you know, have taken to heart a lot of, you know, the, you know, kind of character attacks against them. And they've become very concerned about ethics and think about it a great deal, far more than some Christians do. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, there's unethical atheists, but give me a break. There's unethical Christians. I think yeah. That, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, there, there's, I think that we just have to pause and actually really understand people. You know, this whole worldview approach you're talking about, too, I think has like a far deeper problem. There is really no such thing, I'd say, as a single Christian worldview either. Yeah. If you look at, if you look at Christians, we all have different worldviews mm -hmm. um, and in, in different cultures, you know, in different contexts. There's certain commonalities, but there's certain differences. I think a better way to understand our faith is that the gospel is a seed it's a living thing that you plant in a person's worldview and it grows something new. Mm. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's still in that worldview. <laughs> mm. it's, yeah. it's something living grows there that that's from, you know, it's kind of transplanted into it, but we're still, you know, you know, we're still going to speak English, right? We're still mm -hmm. going to uh, see the world through screens. We're still going to have a different worldview than Paul did. And Paul, and you know, different worldview and Paul had a different worldview than Abraham did. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Paul had a different worldview than Peter did too. They had different worldviews. Yeah. It's far more particulate and varied, but there's something that kind of transcends our worldviews. That's real. That's a living person that, that even when we have our ideas wrong, that actually is war that's actually living and real and growing. Uh, and, and I think that's actually uh, a better way to conceive it. Hmm. Excellent. Thank, thank you so much for, for those comments. I think that's a, a real helpful way to start uh, wrapping up. There's just um, one, one question we generally ask our guests uh, before we leave. And there was a question very early on 
about this. We, we talk about sources or resources that um, can help people as they engage. Obviously, there's your book. I uh, highly recommend it. I, I really enjoyed reading it. And if that hasn't come across through this chat, um, well, I just want to confirm that I did enjoy it. And it was, I'm not just saying that because you're here. Um, so one of the questions right back to where we were starting was talking about the uh, doctrine um, doctrine but the sort of journey of Columbus to the new world and how the new world impacted um, theology around origins and, and who are these people in the new world um, were they made the image of God and that sort of thing do you have any resources that can kind of yeah there's allow- a really excellent article by Ken Keithley so what it's not public yet but you can hear and talk about it um, in the uh, evangelical theological society meeting um, but I'm pretty soon I'm going to make that public. So the right way to do that is to go to peacefulscience.org and join our mailing list. And if you're there in the next month or so, um, or maybe sooner, we'll see that will, or maybe a little bit later too. Uh, you know, you'll, you can kind of stay in touch with what's going on and that, that, that'll come out soon. There's also a lot of articles there that I think are helpful. And there's also a lot of books we've recommended. Bill Craig's book is about to come out too soon too. And um, yeah, I think that, that that's probably the right place to go. Awesome. Uh- any any other resources or or things that maybe your your book almost is a gateway to? Where where what things podcasts would you really recommend people uh, listening? So if you want to wanna know more, uh, certainly the Bible Project podcast uh, that happened is a great place to go. Um, yeah. Uh, there's there's also there's also been a lot of books and articles coming out responding to it. So if you Google around for that, you'll find it. I mean, like a, a really, one really good book is called The Generations of Heaven and Earth by John Garvey. Uh, I really recommend that. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, I also talk about Bill Craig's book that, that, that's coming out, too, um, in a couple a couple weeks. Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff, actually. Right. <laughs> Um, and you know, it's a growing conversation I mean, it's, it's been about two years since the book came out, but you know, the conversation is, uh, in some ways stronger now than it was two years ago. So I was just, um, just distracted because apparently Satan entered the live chat on YouTube. So I've just put him in timeout. <laughs> <laughs> so, we had Yahweh earlier as well. We, we had, had Yahweh, Yahweh earlier, Satan yeah. on the, yeah. uh, so, so someone's trying to troll, which is, uh, a great time to close off the conversation of it. Um, Joshua, it's been a real pleasure and really thank you so much for your time. Dan, do you have any sort of final comments, statements? Uh, no, no, just just really appreciate it. And I, 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 have, I haven't read your book yet, but it's on my reading list. I've just re-added it to its top of my Amazon <laughs> reading list. So next time I get paid, which is about five days, That'll be the first book that I order. So I really, I'm, I'm even really looking forward to having a read of it now because that explains uh, Like Phil was like kind of deep into the weeds. I think you were catching up a little bit. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I'll be. I try and stay out of this because I, I, I've always. Um, it's one of those things where I'm very happy to be. Just say I, I don't know. Uh, but I, what I don't want to be, I don't want to be wrong. But I don't want to nail my, you know, to the mask and kind of say this is this definitely happened. That makes me, you know, I know enough to. Uh, to understand my own ignorance, so um, I look forward to having a having a read of it and, and being much more informed, and hopefully having some interesting conversations with with, with friends about it. Great. Well, thanks cool. for having me. It's, it's our pleasure. Cool. I'll, I'll close up the uh, the stream. So thanks everyone for watching and for your comments. Sorry if we didn't get to your questions. I think we got to to most of them. 
Um, if you we didn't get the book, go to peacefulscience.org uh, and and get signed up on that. Um, if you enjoyed the channel, please do all those usual things of liking, subscribing, and sharing. We really appreciate that. And also, if you are keen to see this channel grow, um, we've got a few Patreons. We're very grateful to them. They help cover the costs of website and streaming and, and a bit of kit and uh, again we're very grateful to them and all their insights and advice in the background so if you'd like to join that small but growing community uh patreon.com and for as little as a, a pound or a dollar depending on where you are you can help support the channel and again we appreciate you guys out there um lots going on we've just passed 500 subscribers thanks to the conversation with bob from speakers corner Check out that conversation about Christian power and uh, how to respond to the, the sort of persecution that's happening around the world. Uh, really interesting conversation. Do check that out and subscribe to his channel. And we've got uh, quite a long list of other conversations coming up. We do about two streams a month. Subscribe to the channel and you won't miss out. If you're on Patreon, you'll find out a little bit earlier than everyone else as to who's coming up. So thanks again. Thanks for watching and uh, be blessed. See you soon. for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show if you like what you hear please do give us a subscribe on youtube or follow us on any of the social media out there and give us feedback get in touch let us know what you think if you really enjoyed the content and want to support it find us on patreon.com